I'm happy to have our next guest join us on the line. He is none other than Dr. Hassan Kwame Jeffries. He's an associate professor of history at The Ohio State University, where he teaches courses on the civil rights movement and the black power movement. Hassan was born in Brooklyn, New York, graduated summa cum laude from Morehouse College with a BA in history. At Morehouse, he was initiated into the Pi chapter of the greatest fraternity known to God man, Kappa Alpha Psi. He earned a PhD in history with a specialization in African-American history from Duke University. He taught for a year at the University of Alabama in Tuscaloosa before joining a faculty at Ohio State. He is the author of Bloody Lounge, Civil Rights and Black Power in Alabama's Black Belt. And I'll talk to him about that more so he can tell us what that book is about. Um, his current book project, In the Shadow of Civil Rights, examines the black experience in New York City from 1977 to 1993. And we were really watching BET for a while for its videos and its music, but BET has turned a corner and most recently did a piece, a six-part series called Boiling Point, where Professor Jeffries was one of the stars in the first episode, which covered the Rodney King beating and the aftermath. Happy to have him on the line, happy to talk about black history, black folks, and black stuff. Uh, welcome to WVON, Professor. How are you this morning? I'm doing wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. Looking forward to the dialogue. Well, I'm so glad that you were able to join us. I know we just talked yesterday, actually for the first time, although, as I mentioned to you, I've been wanting to speak with you for a good while because you've been doing some great stuff and having this kind of scholar on our air in this morning, filling our heads and minds with what we need to know is critical to our community. So thank you for, uh, thank you for indulging us. Absolutely. So um, I didn't mention the fact that you are, if people, if the name sounds familiar, he is the brother of Hakeem Jeffries, the congressman who was uh, will always be known as the brother who quoted Biggie Smalls on the <laughs> on the floor of, uh, of, of the house, which is always, I mean, <laughs> if you don't know, now you know. Now you know. Now you know. <laughs> so let's talk about your, um, well, first of all, let's talk about why you studied history and, and how Morehouse mm. was and how you got into this work. Well, my interest in history actually uh, predates Miles College. Um, you know, I grew up in Brooklyn, New York, as, 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 you, as you mentioned, as you noted, um, coming of age in the in, in 1980s, uh, coming, going to high school, graduating high school in 1990 before I headed down to Atlanta. And, you know, as you remember, you know, in the 1980s, uh, in all-black community, whether it was in Chicago or where I grew up in Crown Heights, New York, those were some rough times. Um, the, the war on drugs had really accelerated um, the crack epidemic was 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 raging. Uh, homicides. We we think we think you know Chicago is always getting hit on the hit hard for uh, the number of homicides as as you know for increasing and being on the rise. You know New York City in 1990 had 3,000 homicides that year. We talking about 10 a day, uh, and so it was it was a violent place. It was a dangerous time, and. And and as I was going to school and riding the subway uh, through various neighborhoods to get to my high school, Midwood High School, you know, I'm seeing this. You know, I'm hearing gunshots at night. Uh, you know, I'm seeing you know uh, drug transactions. I'm I'm not seeing police, and when I do see police, they're wilding out on people. 
and nothing I was learning in school was helping me explain what I was seeing. You know, in a, I'm in physics, I'm in biology, I'm in economics, I'm in history, and nobody is saying anything that is helping me make sense of my world. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I grew up in um, with with two parents who were social workers. And, you know, so we would have these conversations about what was going on in the world. Um, they would take my brother and I often up to Harlem uh, to hear the great Pan-Africanist thinkers who would come through on Saturdays. I'd rather, I'd rather be playing Little League Baseball, but they're like, no, no, no. Y'all going to come up and hear Dr. Ben and Dr. Clark and all these other folks. Uh, and so I was exposed to the importance of history early on, and yet I wasn't seeing how it was being um, applied in the classroom to help me make sense of my world. And so when I headed down to Atlanta to go to Morehouse, I, I headed down with the intention of being a history major um, because I wanted to, I wanted, and knowing that I was going to go to graduate school, people say, well, when did you think you were going to get a PhD? I was like, when I was a freshman in college. <laughs> I said, I want to. Not only learn, but I want to keep learning, and then I want to share, and I want to research, and I want to write. And so, you know, for me, it was history. For others, it was, you know, sociology and psychology. That was the beauty of, of going to Morehouse, all-black, all-male college, is that you met brothers who were, were all trying to figure this thing out um, and, and pursuing different pathways to it. Uh, but Morehouse really provided the space uh, for us to do that learning uh, and fueled our interest. And, and, and coming up with ways that would, uh, for us to be uh, in service to our community. And that, and that was really important uh, to me. It was something instilled in my brother and I uh, from our parents. They said, it doesn't matter what you do, uh, as long as you do it for the people. Uh, and for my brother, that was, you know, electoral politics. Uh, and for me, it was, it, was, it was research and teaching. So it was just the two of you. You and Hakeem are the only children of your, of your parents? Yeah, it's just the two of us. You know, he's the older brother. Um, I'm the better looking one. And and, it's, <laughs> and it's so, but, you know, we've always had these interesting, because, you know, he went to law school, uh, right. you know, before. He had, he had always, you know, you think about even calling, you know, hip hop since we were in bunk beds. I'm like, oh, more of it, more of it. And, you know, but we always had these ongoing debates, you know, was, what's, what's the best way to be a service to the community? Right? Like law or history or teaching? You know, debating about the civil rights movement when we're, you know, literally in bunk beds, right? Listening to listening to the ball game on the radio. So this is something that was just instilled in us, um, you know, from from our parents. You know, again, that social worker uh, tradition mixed in with uh, an appreciation for black nationalism and pan-Africanism, them coming out of the 60s and early 70s. Again, you, you got to do something. And no matter what it is, it just has to be done in service to the people. Well, I can imagine that the conversations at your house on Thanksgiving and holidays must really be rich and full as you all sit and have these deep conversations. I'm looking forward to someday coming over and sitting down and just listening to them because it's got to be full and rich. Uh, were your parents college educated as well? You said they were social workers. Yeah, they were. Um, both uh, are from the Northeast. My, my mom from Connecticut, my dad from, from Newark, New Jersey. Um, and they met decidedly working class. Um, you know, neither of their parents um, had had gone to college. You know, just products of the segregated North. Uh, my great grandparents, products of the segregated South, uh, Virginia and Georgia. Uh, and my parents, you know, but their parents, so my grandparents, although neither one of them had more than a high school education, no, no set had more than a high school education. They all very much understood the value of education and where possible, 
um, you know, tried to make it possible for my parents to get there. So they were also graduates of a uh, historically black college. So they both went to central Ohio, a central state here in here in Ohio, um, down in Xenia over by Wilberforce. And then that's where they met and then moved to New York City when they finished and, you know, re- retired now as social workers, but, you know, spent their entire career. My father as a substance uh, use counselor, substance abuse counselor uh, in New York City uh, for some 30 years. Uh, and my mother working with uh, home placement for the city of New York uh, for for families uh, and adults who are on, on Medicaid. Love it. And that's why you and your brother have gone so far and continue to serve us as you do. Ladies and gentlemen, we're talking to Dr. Hassan Jeffries. Uh, Hassan, you know, I really wanted to uh, later in life. I wished I had I wished I had majored in history because I keep learning how much I don't know. Mm. And so your scholarship is so important in helping us to put things in context. And that's what history does. Your first book, Bloody Lounge, Civil Rights and Black Power in Alabama's Black Belt. Let's talk about that for a minute, because that really it's a lot of interesting things in there that I didn't appreciate until I was gifted a copy of your of your book. So talk about why you decided to share the stories of, of Lowndes County, what happened in Lowndes County, Alabama, and how it affects what took place in the black power movement and what's going on today. Well, certainly. And thank you. You know, uh, Lowndes County was a special place. Lowndes County, Alabama. Uh, is is located in the heart of the Alabama Black Belt, um, a county uh, situated between uh, Selma, Alabama, which was for so long the capital of the uh, the economic capital of the Alabama Black Belt, and Montgomery, which is the state capital. And Lowndes County, you know, I know in, in Chicago, uh, you have many of folk who were uh, migrants of or descendants of migrants, children and grandchildren of migrants from Mississippi. Right. Uh, well, you know, many of the counties and communities uh, that uh, migrants from uh, Mississippi who settled in Chicago, those counties and communities looked just like Lowndes County, whether it was in the Delta or elsewhere. Lowndes County was 80 percent African-American in 1965, at the start of 1965, and not a single one, 5,122 eligible black voters and not a single one uh, was registered to vote. And it wasn't because they were uninterested in electoral politics. It was because of racial terrorism and racial violence. Uh, They were kept away from the voter registration uh, polls. They were not allowed to vote, to register. Uh, And if anyone had attempted to register, uh, they were either beaten, and and if they were just beaten, they were lucky and fortunate, uh, or they were killed. And so there was a palpable fear. Uh, that kept African Americans away from the voter polls, and it was a it was a reasonable and logical fear based upon the history of racial terrorism. There, uh, I titled the book "Bloody Lounge" because that's what people call Lowndes County because of this long history of racial violence, bloody Lowndes. But Rufus, the remarkable thing happened between the start of 1965, where you had zero registered black voters, to the end of 1966. Uh, you know, uh, less than two years. Uh, about 18 months or so, uh, Lowndes County was transformed from a citadel of violent white supremacy into the heart of Southern black militancy as a partnership between local people um, and active. And, and, no, I mean, local people, I mean, you know, some tenant farmers, some small landowners, uh, you know, a handful of, of you know, small, a couple teachers here and there, 
just ordinary folk partner with uh, young activists from the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, SNCC, led by uh, 23-year-old Stokely Carmichael Kwame Toure, uh, and they transformed that county uh, by not only succeeding in registering a majority of African-Americans uh, in, 19, in August of 65, the Voting Rights Act is passed, and so that helps get them on the books. The movement had already begun, this voter registration campaign had already begun in March, uh, even just slightly before and then continuing after the Selma to Montgomery march, which passes through 40 miles through Miles County. But they create their own independent political party, a radically Democratic, small-D political party called the Lowndes County Freedom Organization. And they run their own set of independent candidates for sheriff, for county clerk, uh, tax assessor, uh, tax collector, school board. Uh, In the November 1966 election, in this bold bid to take over the county courthouse, uh, to control the local government and have a say in the decisions that impacted their lives. And that would be one thing if that was it. But they live on in history, uh, not only because they form this independent political party, radically Democrat, right, where you have a, the, the, the sister who runs for tax assessor, the 43-year-old uh, mother of a couple children uh, by the name of Alice Moore, and her platform is tax the rich to feed the poor. Mm-hmm. Like we, can't, we can't even tax the rich anymore, let alone the poor. That was that's what she was running on. These are ordinary folk, right? These weren't, you know, we, we, we think about the great political thinkers as, as coming from, you know, the, the, the great intellectual institution. This is a this is a sister on the ground. She's like, no, I understand what's working and what's not working. And and because of the high rate of adult illiteracy, uh, Rufus in Alabama, there was a law on the books that said any political party uh, whether it's a statewide party, national party, or local party at a county level, had to have a ballot symbol. And the folk in Lowndes County, Alabama, being a rural people, they chose as their ballot symbol a snarling black panther. Mm. And so the Lowndes County Freedom Organization is, in fact, the original Black Panther Party. It's where the Black Panther symbol comes from and serves as the inspiration uh, for what we would see emerge out of Oakland, California, uh, in November, uh, October of 1966 which was the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense, led and organized by Huey Newton and Bobby Seale, that eventually would embrace a kind of Democrat of, of uh, electoral politics as they moved out of the 60s and in, into the 1970s. But it was in Lowndes County, Alabama, that really served as inspiration for the, uh, this particular focus on electoral politics in this way, independent, focusing on self-determination. And then, of course, the last thing I'm saying about why it's so significant is that model for engaging in electoral politics centered around black consciousness, centered around black empowerment, served as the model for what Stokely Carmichael Kwame Ture would mean when he called for black power. So he serves as the uh, project lead for or the lead uh, organizer for that project is down in Lowndes County uh, for, for 10 months or so before he goes to uh, Mississippi uh, during the James Meredith March in June of 1966 and calls for black power. And when people say, well, what do you mean by black power? And he would say exactly what we're doing in Lowndes County, Alabama, you know, about independent politics, creating, you know, economic institutions that serve the people. And so out of this, we often think about black power and certainly the Black Panther Party as being an urban phenomenon. Uh, they're, you know, they're in Chicago, right? We got Fred Hampton in the Illinois chapter. Uh, but black power emerges out of the rural South. And it makes sense because black institution building, 
black self-determination, those concepts are rooted in the soil of the rural South and then resonate with folk and migrants who had moved out. Fantastic story. Bloody Lounge. Get that book, people, because it's got a lot of good, interesting history in it. Talking to Professor Hassan Jeffries about his book so far, uh, Bloody Lounge. And Hassan, you know, the cover of your book, as as I recall, has a picture of the Black Panther on there. So it's interesting how they came up with this symbol down in Lowndes County. But if you can, I know I've got some callers on the line that I want to get into this conversation as well. But how did Stokely Carmichael and SNCC decide to go there? And then how did that movement get from Lowndes County to Oakland and other places around the country moving this uh, black power movement? Well, Carmichael and SNCC had originally partnered with King and SCLC uh, to organize in Selma, Alabama. Uh, and they move on um, Selma, Alabama, start organizing there on the voting rights campaign in January, the very start of the year, in January of 1965. And so no one was going into Lowndes County, Alabama, because there was, in their minds, there was no hope of organizing Lowndes County. It was the, it was the toughest place and the hardest place. Uh, you know, a, a county that was literally sitting right next to Montgomery, Alabama. So you had the Montgomery bus boycott 10 years earlier and nothing was going on in Lowndes County. There was no measurable political activism going there just because it was so dangerous. But then uh, as the a little uh, strategic tension uh, began to develop between SCLC and SNCC during the course of the Selma campaign, that actually culminated in uh, a split. You know, when the when the Selma to Montgomery march is organized following the kill, killing of Jimmy Lee Jackson in February of 65, SNCC activists were like, no, 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 what's the point of a march, right? Like, a march got Jimmy Lee Jackson killed. Like, we're not trying to have a march from Selma to Montgomery. Like, we need to be organizing for power. Hmm. And so when John Lewis, uh, you know, is on is that first, the first soul, to, you know, on that front line of that march, he was there, although he was the chairperson of SNCC, he was there representing himself because Snick was like, we just think this is a bad idea. You're going to get somebody else killed. And, and so, but once the march happens and once Bloody Sunday happens, you know, Snick's mantra was always, you never let violence stop a movement. And even though we disagree tactically with SCLC and this, in this march approach, we're going to support the march. And so they support it. They, 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 you know, provide the man and woman power hours and resources to help the march go through. But as the march is making its way from Selma to Montgomery, and again, some 45 miles are through Lowndes County, they organize in the wake of Lowndes County, meeting the people who come out to see the marches go through. Because their thinking was, if we can organize Lowndes County, Alabama, where we know SCLC ain't going to go, right? And King was like, nah, 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 it's a little too hot for us. Then we can, it was almost like a domino theory that they had. Like, if we can organize Lowndes County, then all the other counties in the Black Belt will fall. And so after the Selma to Montgomery march, uh, Stokely Carmichael with a handful of numbers in his pocket uh, and just a few dollars, they move into Lowndes County. Uh, and, and there they will stay uh, for a year and a half. And so that's how they get there. And then as over the course of that, that, that spring and that summer of 1965, and then certainly after they form uh, the Lowndes County Freedom Organization and announce it uh, in December of 65 and January 65, it really captures the attention of activists around the country. And while the news wasn't necessarily, uh, major mainstream uh, media wasn't focusing on what was going on in Lowndes County, 
other than that, they were doing this obscure thing and not running into the hands of the Democratic Party. You know, activists around the country were like, man, we got to support this. And so you had organizers, not Huey or Bobby, but you had other organizers in Oakland, California, who were making regular trips. One fellow was in, by the name of Mark Comfort, who were making regular trips to Lowndes County, Alabama, and, you know, to, to help support the movement there. And Lowndes County activists, the chairperson in particular, John Hewlett, who would eventually become the first black sheriff down there, he's traveling around the country doing fundraising and so and, go, and, and, and galvanizing support. And so literally, Huey Newton and Bobby Seale had heard about this uh, organization. And as they were sitting, the day they were sitting down in October of 66, thinking about, you know, creating a new grassroots organization, you know, to deal with the issues that they were facing in Oakland, California, uh, Bobby Seale literally uh, has a flyer uh, announcing a program to discuss uh, the Lowndes County Freedom Organization. And he looks at the symbol and is like, man, this is it. This is speaking to us, right? We are just like them. We are backed into a corner just like a panther, just like a cat. And now it's time for us to come out, come out fighting for life or death. Fantastic. Ohio State is lucky to have you. This is fantastic history and <laughs> fantastic context that you put it in, which is why I wish I had studied history and why I have so many books around my house. We're talking about bloody lounge, civil rights and the black and black power in Alabama's black belt. We've got a couple callers assigned that I'd like to try to get in. Ron's been holding for on holding on for a while. Uh Ron, how are you this morning? Welcome to VON. What's on your mind? Yes, good morning, Rufus and to your guests. Um, wonderful subject. Well, I wanted to ask you real quickly, can you comment on I guess what was considered an ideological difference and conflict between the um, Black Panther parties and what um, the, the, the nationalists. I know um, the uh, Black Panther Party was more um, inspired by a Marxist ideology, and I read that that kind of caused some of the split. So thank you very much. Oh, absolutely. Thank you for the question, Ron. And it's important that we that we put that, that ideological conflict, and I, and, I, and I like the way you framed the question, because um, it was. It, it, it was about uh, in, it was about a different approach to securing freedom, both cultural nationalists, or in this instance, us and the Black Panther Party, who considered themselves revolutionary nationalists. They, they both believe in black freedom and black independence, but they had significant differences in terms of where to put the emphasis strategically and how to get there. And us and Milana Karenga, for example, believe that the way to liberation was through a cultural assertion. Uh, of 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 pan Africanism and Black nationalism, that that in and of itself, I mean, often they're dismissed as saying, "Oh, if you just wear dashikis, you don't get free." No, no, no. It was like you got to have this uh, a revolutionary mindset. You got to liberate your mind, and then once you do that, you can do the necessary institution building in order to get free. The Black Panthers are like, you know, you got to have a, a a cultural mindset revolution as well, centered around Black consciousness. But the emphasis has to be, the lead emphasis has to be on fundamentally changing the economic system and economic structure. That was their sort of the Marxist analysis that they brought to the table. And unfortunately, although, although, the, although the end goal was the same, uh, you know, speaking broadly for both groups, and you have cultural nationalists like in New York, the New York chapter uh, was steeped in Pan-Africanism as a, a very much along the lines of what we saw with uh, us organization in, in, in L.A. and California, uh, although you had legitimate ideological differences, those are exploited by the federal government, specifically uh, the FBI, 
that is is trying hard to undermine uh, black radicalism and black activism by pitting one organization against the other. Uh, and, and, and so we see this it literally coming to uh, blows uh, on the campus of UCLA uh, that leads to the death of, of, of two us activists uh, in this class. But, you know, so there was a there were, were there were real and significant ideological differences as well as tactical differences in how to gain freedom. The overall goal was the same, but the rift gets exploited by the federal government. You know, it connected very much to the counterintelligence program, COINTELPRO, the same program that leads to the killing of Fred Hampton and Mark Clark, uh, because it was because of the fear that the federal government had of what would happen to America, become more democratic, become more open, if you allow these uh, black nationalists, black radical, black Marxist organizations to continue uh, to lead the fight for freedom. Fantastic. Ms. Rufus Williams, we have the distinct pleasure of talking to Professor Hassan Jeffries about black history, black power. And, you know, Hassan, when you were explaining the story of Stokely Carmichael, SNCC, what's going on in Lowndes County, Bloody Lowndes, it just gives me the, the vision of, you know, going into a fight and trying to hit the biggest guy in the nose because then you can you have a chance of winning everybody else easily and it seems like this was the toughest place to go that was selected to go in and pull forth this this push to get bloody lounge and, and and get black power really started there and it gives us some sense of what can be done now in the face of all that's going on so tell me what lessons do we take from what took place in bloody lounge that we can apply to today i think one of the one of the critical lessons is around electoral politics um, that comes out of Lowndes County. Like, you know, we often, when we think about the civil rights movement, um, too often we look at the Voting Rights Act and see that as, as sort of the end of the movement, right? I mean, we might fast forward ahead to 68 and say, well, movement ends when King dies, but th- that's not what happens. The, the, the Voting Rights Act is a critical piece of federal legislation, of course, but it is the beginning of a new phase of the black freedom struggle and certainly not the end. And one of the and the critical emphasis and why it's a beginning, one of the critical points of emphasis for African-Americans in Lowndes County was not Amphasnet. And for, and for Stokely Carmichael Kwame Ture, it was not just voter registration or even voter mobilization, but it was voter education. And they said it's not enough just to put the ballot in black hands. What good is it if you are able to control the vote, but you can't control your life or have the vote and you're unable to control the vote and therefore control your life? And so they were very interested in voter education. And that's what created the Lowndes County Freedom, Freedom, Lowndes County Freedom Party, a freedom organization, Freedom Party, as this radically Democrat, radically uh, radical experiment in democracy. Because they were like, we have to empower the people so that they can make the decision, so that they can be the ones who are going to run for office and, and no longer make wealth, whiteness, and previous political experience as prerequisites for holding office. And so it really was a radical vision born of the organizing expertise of Ella Baker. Uh, you can't talk about the movement without, without talking about Ella Baker uh, applied to electoral politics. So they offer us a model for uh, political empowerment. Uh, you know, there was w- at one point, you know, so we call Michael Kwame Ture says, he says, you know, it's not radical. Even if we elect Martin Luther King president of the United States, his decisions are still made from the top down. It's only radical decisions are made from the bottom up. And, and, and that's an approach to politics that would still serve us well today. 
Absolutely, because what we're finding and where some of the frustration that people have is the fact that we do have people, black folks in office, but we don't see the changes that we hope to have seen just by having a face in that place. It's the system that has to be changed. And to your point, the system has changed from the bottom up. The system has changed by the people who are being impacted by the system and not just by putting another figurehead at the top of it and expecting something different to happen in, in that case. So there's so many lessons that come from the context of history. And I'm so grateful uh, that you have the opportunity to share this with us this morning because it does put it in in perspective, particularly when we see so many assaults that are coming from all places and certainly from all states, it it feels, against the vote, against the voting rights that were fought for so heavily back in the the 60s and times before that. That's so critically important, and especially in this moment, now, certainly along in the era, in the realm of electoral politics, where we're dealing not with wholesale voter exclusion as we once did in the past, but with voter suppression. I mean, there's a the, the line is unbroken from the efforts of you know to keep African Americans from voting through the poll tax and the literacy test to voter identification and gerrymandering today. And so we have to understand where the efforts to keep the ballot out of black hands comes from so that we can adequately address it. And so that we also don't, and this is a critical part too, Rufus, is that we got to be careful not to overinvest in electoral politics. Hmm. But yeah, it's important to have, um, to have our people represented in office, but we also have to realize, and this is one of the things that we did not see radical change coming out of the 1960s. Yeah, there was fundamental change in who could serve in office, but we did not see a radical change in America's capitalist economy. And so, therefore, in the absence of that change, uh, in absence of, of a redistribution of wealth, then a lot of the problems that were rooted in poverty persisted. Wow. And so how do we get those? How do we change that? I mean, the, these things that existed then and still exist now, how do we change that? Well, first, we have to be honest right, uh, about the economic system in which we live. Right. And, and, and capitalism is a problem. Capitalism. As 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 practiced in America is a problem. You know, Martin Luther King had, you know, he said the three major things that we need to be worrying about are race uh, isms, racism, militarism, and capitalism. And he said, how are you going to have the richest nation in the history of humanity and still have people who are hungry, still have people who are homeless, still have people who are jobless? I mean, the only reason why we have people on the streets uh, who are homeless is because we choose to have them that way. And, and, and that's, that's a priorities problem. We have the money. We have the resources uh, to do it. Look, we just hit this pandemic. We start cutting trillion-dollar checks, and we could have and should have cut more. So we can do it. We just choose not to do it. We just have to reevaluate what's more important, profit of people. And then once we think differently and shift our priorities, then we can do the thing that will help people um, really uh, help this nation uh, move towards that more perfect union, meaning equality and in, in opportunity and equality and outcome for all folks. You know, it's fascinating you go to that point, and I know that my producer is dancing on top of the desk because we have these conversations about capitalism often, uh, pretty much every day. And so your statements fit right into where his thoughts are. Um, and we talked recently, even with the stimulus packages come through, 
to your point, all this money is being let out into society, but those at the very bottom don't even have access to it, even though the money is there. So we talked about mm. the homeless and how the homeless get their stimulus checks and they don't. The fact of the matter is they will still be intense and they will still be on the side of the road. They will still not be participating even in what's coming there because somehow in a place that is able to get, have Jeff Bezos go and become the mm. wealthiest person almost in the world, we still can't figure out how to get a $20, a $600, a $1,400 check to people who are right there hiding in plain view. And that, mm. in fact, is a matter of priorities and not a matter of anything else because we, we can send a rocket to Mars and we can send man to the moon, but we can't figure out how to feed the people on the side of the road. That is our problem. And it is a messed up priority that we have as a nation. Ladies and gentlemen, we're talking to Professor Hassan Jeffries. And if you haven't watched BET lately, they've moved on from the videos and they've got some really interesting programming on, not the least of which is a series called Boiling Point. So far, it's a six-part series. It talks about Rodney King in one episode, Attica in another, Bloody Sunday, which was the Voting Rights Act in Selma in another Schoolhouse Door, which talked about George Wallace in the University of Alabama, another one on Hurricane Katrina, and of course, covering George Floyd. The first episode on Rodney King, Hassan, you were in that episode a lot. So why don't we talk about that? Talk about, um, we talk about the series, talk about Rodney King, talk about uh, the effect that it has had on our society, if you would. Absolutely. You know, it was a, it was an interesting series in that I, I appreciated the concept um, rather than doing sort of the traditional uh, documentary take and just looking at uh, a, a historical event uh, and exploring it from different angles in the context of the times. Uh, the Boiling Point series does that, uh, but it also makes direct connections to the present. How has this, how has that event uh, that reached a, that created a boiling point, sort of a crisis moment, uh, in American society, not just for African Americans, but in American society as a whole, how has that reverberated through time? And what were its uh, roots? And in other words, how did we get there? So it takes this historical moment, for example, the, uh, the beating of Rodney King at the hands of uh, Los Angeles uh, police uh, in, 19, in 1990, 1990, 91, and then of course, or 1991, and then of course, the um, um, uh, acquittal of the um, police officers who beat him uh, the following year, leading to uh, the LA uprising. Sort of, it, it explores the different elements of the of the incident itself, but looks at so the history of policing, for example, and and racial violence and racial terrorism emanating uh, from not people who were wearing white robes, but from people who were wearing blue uniforms and shields. You know, more folk, uh, brother Rufus. You know, more people have died or died and continue to die at the hands of police than have ever died at the hands of racial terrorist organizations, even during the height of the civil rights movement. No matter where you were, every major metropolitan area, whether it was Los Angeles or Chicago or New York, more black folk died at the hands of police than died at the hands of racial terrorists in the entire South during the entire civil rights era just in one year. And so we have to have, so when we think about whether it's Rodney King, you know, being beaten by the police or George Floyd, 
uh, which the last episode was about dying at the hands of the police with an officer kneeling on his neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds. We have to put that into the larger historical context of, of police violence, police terror that isn't new, that is deeply rooted uh, and that is part of the culture of policing in America. And that's profound because those are things and Rodney King was the first one that really stunned us because it was on video just as right. George Floyd was on video. So we see these things and the, the trial of George Floyd is taking place. Now the jury's just been seated. The concern always first, these things happen and people don't believe it. And then it's on video so people can see it. And now we push for charges and people get charged. But just as you pointed out, it was so clear to everyone and what happened with Rodney <clears throat> King that when these officers were not convicted the uprising happened people acted as you would out of anger and frustration with a system that doesn't protect us and to the extent that we've got police who began with slave patrols and just moved in this un this connected line all the way through to see now that it's not people who are hiding behind robes but hiding behind badges that are creating mm. harm in our in our community uh, it's it's problematic and it's powerful the way in which this came. You're putting it in context today, just as you do in the film, is so unbelievably helpful. So I know as we go through all the other ones, these other stories kind of bring the same thing. So Boiling Point is just a phenomenal series. And when I saw you on Gail King uh, on CBS this morning talking about that, it was immediate. I said, then when I come on next time I'm on VON, I need to have this brother come on <laughs> just talk about this because it's. It's powerful. And I knew that there was a connection because we say in the black community, there's only two degrees of separation. You should be able to call somebody right. and get you to somebody else. And that's exactly what happened yesterday, which is why we were able to have you on today. I also want to make sure that we talk about the, your current project in the shadow of civil rights. Uh, you do some work on what happened in New York from this period from 1977 to 1993. Why don't you talk about that? And then I'm going to bring some callers on because I know they've got some questions and I want to make sure they get into the conversation before you go. Okay, sounds good. And, and just ever so briefly, you know, we think about the African American freedom struggle and the civil rights movement, black power movement, and we really confine it to, you know, late 50s, mid 50s to the to mid 1970s. Uh, and then, you know, when we think about, you know, sort of black history, then we're going to jump from there. We might talk about mass incarceration, but we're going to go from there to Barack Obama and now Kamala Harris. And I'm like, wait a minute, you, you got a half a century of history in between. And so that first phase, certainly on the heels of the black power era, is what's happening in our urban spaces. And I'm focusing on New York, but the story could equally be Chicago or Los Angeles or Oakland, California. Between the late 1970s and so the end of the Black Power era and the uh, early 1990s, when we begin to see our urban spaces uh, shifting politically as the beginning rise of gentrification and these other things. And in New York, it's the rise of uh, Rudy Giuliani uh, and, and sort of urban North Republicanism. Uh, that would have a devastating impact on the African-American community. But what happens in between? And so, you know, in the shadow of the civil rights movement, how did communities in the urban spaces of the North in particular uh, try to give meaning uh, to civil rights gains? Uh, in New York, uh, that's a lot of organizing on the ground. In Chicago, we get Harold Washington. And so this is a critical moment that we really have to dissect and make sense of, not only to help us understand, well, what did we achieve coming out of the civil rights era, but also where did we still need to go uh, in dealing with war on power and war on drugs, uh, mass incarceration, AIDS epidemic, right? Uh, coming out of the 1980s into the 1990s. 
So, son, is this book on the shelves now? Can we go out and get it? Can we buy it? No, still, still researching, still interviewing. Uh, but hopefully, it, you know, it'll be out soon. I just, I just finished editing a book for educators called "Understanding and Teaching the Civil Rights Movement," where I brought together a collection of of of, of, of scholars uh, to talk about the fundamental aspects that we need to be focusing on, both as as formal educators, but then also as community educators and as parents when we talk about uh, the civil rights movement. So that's available. And a uh, Audible Originals book too. Uh, that for those who are you know who are into Audible books uh, called um, uh, Great Figures of the Civil Rights Movement, where I focus on ten activists and tell the story of the Black freedom struggle uh, through these biographies of ten known and unknown, uh, familiar and unfamiliar activists. So those are available. Still working on the shadow of civil rights, but that's what we do. We spend our time in the lab researching before we before we share with the world. Keep doing the work, brother. Keep doing the work. We got a couple of callers. Deborah's been holding on for a while. Deborah, how are you this morning? Welcome to VON. Praise God. Uh, blessed Trinity. Thank you. And uh, thank you for your expertise, um, sir. Um, Jeffries? Yes, yes. Thank Dr. You. Jeffries? Yes, thank you. And I thank you for the subject. Um, it's, so, it's so much there um, pertaining to what has happened to us as a people and where we're going, and it's so important. And, and one of the main things that's uh, critical is the part that was left out of the educational component. Um, that's the something that seems to have been dropped, um, as you were saying, during, um, the, the, I guess, the 70s or so, um, in terms of the inner cities. There wasn't a, 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 a push to really educate our young people about the uh, voting rights and all. And I, I feel that's, that's another way of suppression, apathy, and others by those who come into office and do nothing to educate the younger generation about what has happened. Surely we have awakening now that the younger people are engaged. But I know that Dr. King, Malcolm X, and those in the past really wanted that they push for that. That's the something that in, in, in terms of what's happening also in terms of culture, no one talks about the, the, the time of Hugh Hefner, the effect it had. We know that with black women, you had the welfare, and that drove the black men away. But there's a component that's missing out. How can we fix the whole puzzle if we don't look at that and to see how the black family was neglected by that mindset of, not being there, it's okay. You could do your own thing. And until we get that, the world can't look at us because we're not respecting our women and our girls when we have sex trafficking, elderly abuse, and the likes all across the country, especially in major black cities. So I, I'm hoping from a historical point of view that could be brought into play. Thank you for accepting my call. Deborah, thank you for those comments and your thoughts. Hassan, hold on a second. I'm going to grab Eddie, and then I'll ask you to uh, comment on all that, and then we'll wrap it up. Eddie, good morning. Welcome to VON. What's on your mind? Fantastic, gentlemen. How are you doing? Doing great. Very good. Thank good. you. Wonderful. You know, I, uh, I feel, in my opinion, that uh, capitalism is not a bad thing. Uh, the problem is, first of all, I, I feel that we don't even live in a fully capitalistic economy, I think it's a combination of socialism, capitalism, I call it socio-capitalistic uh, economy, because we do have welfare and, you know, things of that nature. The problem is that 
the the balance between the social component and the capital component is is too far off base. We need to turn up the social component. But I don't want to get rid of capitalism because capitalism, unfortunately, because its main ingredient is greed, but it also fuels people to to go beyond what they would want to go uh, in, in exchange for the hopes of acquiring things. And that's why we have the advances in, in disciplines from science to entertainment. And I think if we didn't have that capitalistic in, uh, ingredient, a lot of these things wouldn't exist. So I, I think it's just more about it needs to be better regulated and we need to be more concerned. Maybe that's the compassion element that, that the government needs to have is more of a safety net for those who, whether by choice or by circumstances, do not want to excel and be the best that they can be, but still be able to maintain a quality of life. I have no problem with that, but I don't want to eliminate somebody's ability to have the, have all that they want. Um, because at the end of the day, in the most, in the most uh, communist countries, you still have the leaders living like a king. The only people that are living like a king are the masses. So capitalism is the only form of government I know that will actually allow somebody to live like a king uh, other than the king. Thanks for that, Eddie. Thank you for your call and your comments. Hassan, you want to comment on these callers and um, give us some closing thoughts? Because I know we're going to run out of time in a few minutes. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, you know, to, to, the, to the first caller, I can appreciate the importance of the centrality of, of, of the black family. I think it's important for us to understand uh, that black family and black uh, uh, familial connections have always been central to the black community, although they have not always looked uh, like the nuclear family connections. So although, you know, we, we do recognize and acknowledge statistically that there's a high percentage of black families in which and that are uh, that, that children are growing up in unmarried households. But that doesn't mean that black that there is not a black man present. Uh, we also know that partnerships, although not married among African-Americans, are higher uh, than unwed partnerships. In other words, the brother is still there in some capacity, although there may not be a ring on the finger and that. What what we have to understand and appreciate is that it's not so much that, well, the community is faring bad despite, you know, sort of these, these statistics. It's that look how good the community is faring despite all of the obstacles put in front of it, right? I mean, when we think about especially the poorer you are, the harder it is to keep a family together, right? And, right. and so despite that, black folk have been able to stay together. And I think that actually ties into Dwayne's question or comment about capitalism, but there I have to respectfully disagree only in the sense that he's right. We don't have a purely capitalist society, but we also haven't seen purely socialist societies as well. And I don't think we can point to what exists out there in the world and say, ah, that's what socialism would look like one way or the other. We don't have these pure forms, but, but, but my, my, my critique only would be, I think just personally that there are other ways to motivate people than purely the pursuit of profit. And that if we do that, then, you know, I mean, you don't, you don't have scientists who go into science because they're trying to make money necessarily, right? I mean, that's a corporate thing. We don't have doctors right. who are like, oh, I'm going to be a doctor. So no, it's about, it's about connecting with humanity. And, and if we shift those priorities, I think we could have even greater outcomes with fewer people being harmed and hurt. But that's just something that we have to think about and what we want our society uh, to be and the priorities that, that, that govern our society. That's a wonderful place to end. Hassan, thank you so much for your time today and your knowledge, your scholarship, and thanks for sharing it with us. Uh, so good to have you, and I hope we can do this again sometime. 
No, absolutely. It, it was it was an honor and a pleasure and a real delight. Uh, keep up the great work, and I look forward to continuing the dialogue going forward. Amen.